Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible lets you pick from thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 3-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast, so I can tell you about more forgotten conflicts. Today, for reasons that will become clear, I am recommending John Dower's Embracing Defeat, Japan in the Wake of World War II. Dower examines how Japan grappled with the reality of defeat, not just politically, but on a social and psychological level, how it forced them to redefine their nation. Embracing Defeat won the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1869. The place, South America. Paraguay has lost the war, but will they admit it? Francisco Solano Lopez drags his nation into the abyss, and the Triple Alliance shows no mercy as they drive Paraguay down. South America's greatest war approaches its apocalyptic finale. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 51, The Paraguayan War Part 5, Death of a Nation. Guys, we have reached the end of the road, the conclusion to the greatest war in South American history. Some of my episodes are darker and bloodier than the others, and this is one of them. What you're going to hear today will be one of the rougher episodes I have done so far. The the end of the Paraguayan War is not going to be a fun or happy experience. It gets dark, brutal, and messy. But I hope that we can learn something, understand something about wars and nations and humanity by the end of this story. And if you come away struck by this tragedy, feeling a little bit older and a little bit wiser, then I've done my job. Before we go any farther, let's talk about our contest winners from our 50th episode drawing. We had quite a few entries, and I randomly selected five names from the drawing. They are Colin C., Alberto P., Ryan M., Nick L., and Cam J. I will be reaching out to you guys soon for your mail-in information so I can send you your Unknown Soldiers Podcast coffee mug. Thanks to all who participated. Thanks for continuing to support this podcast. And I'll probably do some more drawings down the road. This podcast isn't quite big enough for a full line of merch yet. I'm not Dan Carlin, but maybe that's in the future. All right, guys, let's get on with ending this war. First, it's time for our recap. In episode 47, the Paraguayan War Part 1, The Rivers of Destiny, we were introduced to Paraguay, a small, landlocked, deeply strange little country in the heart of South America. Paraguay was authoritarian, centralized, and extremely nationalistic. Their dictator, Francisco Solano Lopez, was a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur and a glamorous Irish mistress named Eliza Lynch. For many reasons, none of them good, Lopez took Paraguay into war with most of his neighbors. This war pitted tiny but deceptively powerful Paraguay against Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, who soon joined forces under the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. 
In episode 48, The Paraguayan War Part 2, The Triple Alliance, we talked about Lopez's grand offensive into Argentina and Brazil, an offensive that met with disaster in the Great River Battle of the Riachuelo and defeats on land at Yate and Uruguayana. And in episode 49, The Paraguayan War Part 3, The Funnel of Death, we talked about the Allied attack on Paraguay, culminating in the great battles of 1866 at places like Tuyuti, Boqueron, and Curupaiti. In episode 50, the Paraguayan War Part 4, Gibraltar of the South, the war settled into a stalemate. Paraguay, isolated, outnumbered, and suffering, tried to muster the resources to continue the war. And the Allies, politically divided and low on morale, tried to muster the will. A new Brazilian general, the Marquis of Caxias, embarked on a strategy of encirclement and attrition designed to capture Lopez's great fortress at Humaita. By August 1868, Humaita had fallen, and the tide had turned irrevocably against Paraguay. The Allied armies marched north, even as Lopez descended into cruelty and paranoia and started executing his own citizens. The end of the war seemed to be in sight, but Lopez refused to admit defeat. We will be picking up today at this moment, September 1868, with Lopez's army retreating towards Asuncion and Caxias' allied army in pursuit. We are on the verge of the final campaigns of the Paraguayan War. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on, especially today. The podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. We have a warning for this one, particularly horrible violence at the end of this war, including sexual violence and violence committed by and against children. This one gets really rough, please be forewarned. Next, all my sources and some wonderful custom-made useful maps will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, link in the description. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Real quick, I want to tell you guys something. As a historian, I pride myself on my breadth of knowledge, on knowing a good bit about many things, rather than an insane amount about one thing. I have studied a lot of wars across many different time periods in many different parts of the world. And when it comes to the end of the Paraguayan War, I'll tell you this right now, I have never heard of anything else like this. That's it. I've never heard of anything else like this. The story I'm going to tell you today shocks me. A story of national destruction unparalleled in modern history. There is an apocalyptic feel to it, like a Twilight of the Gods, a Götterdammerung, a Ragnarok. The closest analogies are Germany and Japan in World War II, neither of which was as devastated as Paraguay. I'll say it again, I have never heard of anything else like this. The Paraguayan War is one of the series I planned to do from the very beginning, to explain how and explain why. This happened the way it did. And now we're here. The end. The death of a nation. There is a place. About two-hour drive east of Asuncion stands a monument. A metallic Paraguayan flag, tattered, torn, and slumping, cut with metal silhouettes of anonymous soldiers and women. And the silhouettes of these soldiers look very young. This is the Monumento a los Niños Mártires de Acosta Nu the monument to the child martyrs of Acosta New. The Battle of Acosta New, August 16, 1869, was the last major battle of the Paraguayan War. 
And in Paraguay, August 16th is Children's Day. That is not a coincidence. Acosta knew was haunted by the nation that died there. How does a nation cope with defeat? With a calamity so shattering that it defies explanation? We started this series talking about nations and how they can be transformed or formed through a war. But that war doesn't have to be a victory. Modern nations have been formed or transformed by crushing defeats, extremely bitter defeats, that didn't just cause thousands or millions of lives, but forced them to reconsider their national identities. American Southern identity is defined by defeat in the American Civil War. Germany existed before World War I, but its national mythos was radically altered by that defeat. The Russian nation was permanently altered by the collapse of the Soviet Union, And these were not healthy alterations. The Confederacy's defeat turned into segregation and lynching. German defeat in World War I became fascism and genocide. Russia losing the Cold War, well, we're seeing how they cope with that. Not healthy. But Germany and Japan became healthier societies by losing World War II. They grew from their defeats. Human beings lose all the time. We fail all the time. But our response to that failure, we own that. How we remember our history is at least as important as the history itself. So as we witness Paraguay's defeat today, including the Battle of Acosta New, keep in mind that it's not just that you were defeated, it's how you were defeated. The objective facts come to matter less than the subjective experience. After a certain point, the reason this war started doesn't matter. No cause could justify such a sacrifice, the sacrifice of these children. But maybe the sacrifice could justify the cause. Maybe the defeat could be recast as something glorious, positive, almost sacred. Maybe a dead nation can be reborn. But what kind of nation would it be? Today, we will finish the story of the Paraguayan War. We will see the last campaigns of the conflict as the Paraguayan army and nation are ground into powder. We will follow the dictator and his retinue into the literal and symbolic wilderness, as the war seems like it will never end until it does. And we will see the aftermath as four nations cope, or fail to cope, with South America's longest and bloodiest war. And I'm going to tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why today. This is a dark and heavy episode. You will need some breaks. These are your chance to pause, hug your kids, walk your dog, get some fresh air, do the thing you need to do. So mount up and prepare to charge. You and the other former slaves in this cavalry regiment are fighting for your freedom, for Dom Pedro and emancipation. So when you aim your lance at the enemy line, try not to think about how short those enemy soldiers are. How small. The final gasp of a dying nation. Let's finish the campaign. It should have been over. By September 1868, the Triple Alliance was clearly winning the Paraguayan War. The Marquis of Caxias and his 30,000-strong army advanced north up the Paraguay River, accompanied by a navy full of ironclads. Their target was the Paraguayan capital of Asuncion. 
All that stood in their way was the Paraguayan army. Francisco Solano Lopez led barely 18,000 men, and these guys were looking rough. Most of them were teenagers, or younger. They were hungry, barely clothed, barely supplied, and behind them the economy was in ruins, the capital was deserted. But they weren't beaten yet. Lopez gathered his forces to make one last stand 22 miles south of his capital, at a river called the Piquisiri. And once again, Lopez tapped English engineer George Thompson to design his defenses. I think I said earlier in this series that no one man did the Allies more damage than George Thompson. He was invaluable to Lopez's war effort, and the Piquisiri line was his masterpiece. The line started in the west at the fortress of Angostura on the Paraguay River. Colonel Thompson, the only foreigner Lopez ever trusted to actually hold rank in his army, was in command at Angostura. The line extended along the Piquisiri River for nine miles, trenches defended by obstacles. Thompson even had the river dammed to flood any avenues of approach. At the eastern end of the line was a fortified hill called Itaibate, where Lopez built his headquarters. Thompson described the Piquisiri line as the strongest position he had ever seen. It would have to be. This was the last line of defense between the Allies and the Paraguayan capital. When Casillas' army came up against this line, he sent General Manuel Luis Osorio to test the defenses. Osorio came back and said, Yeah, boss, it's strong. A frontal attack would be suicidal. And with the line anchored on the river to the west and wetlands to the east, there was no way to bypass it by land. The Allies were blocked by yet another impregnable Paraguayan position. But Casillas smelled blood. He knew Paraguay was running on fumes. Lopez was on the ropes. It was time to finish the job, destroy the Paraguayan army, and end the war. So Casillas planned his most brilliant maneuver yet. He would cross to the west bank of the Paraguay River and build a road through the Chaco, bypassing the Picasiri line. Then he would recross the river behind Lopez's defenses, put himself between the Paraguayan army and Asuncion, and land the killing blow. This was an operational envelopment in the model of Napoleon, Robert E. Lee, or George Patton, a stroke of genius that Brazilian historians have called the Picciri Maneuver. The problem was building the road. The Chaco was a waist-deep swampy jungle, borderline impassable. Lopez's men built a track through the Chaco in the last episode, but this had taken months and it was barely functional. Casillas wanted to build a good road and build it fast. Most people believed that this was impossible, but Casillas had a hidden weapon, the Brazilian Army's Engineer Corps. He had founded and trained the Army's 1st Engineer Battalion earlier in his career. He knew these men, and he knew they could do it. So Casillas sent his engineers to build a 30-mile road through the swamp as fast as they could. It was a massive undertaking. The engineers had to fell over 30,000 trees, build five bridges across five rivers, clear a thousand yards of vines and knotted scrub brush a day. Brazilian soldiers worked in waist-deep water all day, rain or shine. The work was so difficult that even Casillas had moments of doubt. But his engineer officers said, Boss, we can do it. And they were right. As October turned into November 1868, the road neared completion. And when it was done, Casillas would strike. Lopez tracked the Allied activity from his headquarters on Itaibate, in the rolling hills known as the Lomas Valentinas. 
He sent a few detachments across the river to harass the road builders, but he had very few men to spare, he thought the road was a diversion, and he thought that it was impossible. Lopez was also distracted by Brazilian ironclads that kept bombarding and running past Thompson's battery at Angostura. Either way, Lopez was out of options. His army was withering. His defenses wouldn't stop the Allies forever. The military situation could only get worse. At this point, Paraguay's only hope was that Allied will would finally break. But Allied will wasn't breaking. They wanted the war to be over, but they were on the verge of triumph. Not even political upheaval in Argentina, drink, could change that. See, in April 1868, Argentina had a presidential election. Bartolome Mitre was limited to one term, and even if he had run, he would have lost. His hand-picked successor, Rufino de Elizalde, ran against the old Federalist champion, Justo José de Urquiza. But both of them lost to the third candidate. This was Domingo Sarmiento, former ambassador to the United States, a savvy, well-educated politician. Sarmiento had opposed the Paraguayan War from the beginning. His son Dominguito, the poetic young officer killed at Curupaiti, still haunted his dreams. But if Sarmiento hated the war, he really hated Brazil, which he saw was Argentina's true rival in South America. He wasn't about to throw away a victory and let Brazil grab all the spoils, even if he had opposed the war. So Sarmiento kept Argentina in the war to keep an eye on Brazil, and for no other reason. Brazil was also in political crisis. Tensions had grown between the Marquis of Caxias, a prominent conservative, and the liberal prime minister Zacharias. It was a classic military-civilian conflict. The prime minister and the general disagreed over the direction of the war. But by July 1868, the divide had deepened. Someone had to go. And Dom Pedro sided with the army. He forced Zacharias to resign and cede power to the conservative party. Pedro made this decision so that Brazil could keep its great general in the war and keep winning the war, to restore harmony between civil and military relations. But this set a bad precedent. The one guiding principle of the Brazilian politics before the war had been to keep the army out of politics. But now the army had forced the removal of a prime minister. Instead of politicians dictating military matters, the military was now dictating politics. That would cause problems down the road. By November 1868, Caxias' Chaco Road was ready. It was 30 miles long, reinforced by logs and packed earth, with five bridges, four small fortresses, a telegraph line, and massive stockpiles of supplies. Easily able to transport a massive army quickly through the previously impassable Chaco. Caxias made his move. He left the Argentine and Uruguayan troops to hold Lopez's attention at the Piquisiri line. Meanwhile, he led his Brazilians across the river, up the road, and prepared to recross the river into Lopez's rear. It was clear to outside observers that the last campaign was imminent. European ships evacuated their civilians from Paraguay, if Lopez allowed them to leave, of course. Lots of foreigners escaped, but some had been executed, and Lopez detained others to keep running his industries. American Ambassador Charles Washburn, who had been implicated in the treason trials, did manage to escape, but soon his replacement arrived. General Martin T. McMahon was a Union Civil War hero, a Medal of Honor recipient who had served with the Army of the Potomac all the way to Appomattox. And in December 1868, he arrived at Lopez's headquarters as the new ambassador from the United States of America. 
McMahon quickly developed enormous sympathy for the Paraguayan cause. He saw parallels with his own homeland of Ireland, a small country oppressed by a larger neighbor. It also sounds like he developed a huge crush on Eliza Lynch. Lopez and Eliza greeted the American ambassador eagerly, hoping they could still convince America to intervene or arbitrate the war on their behalf. Lopez was still chatting with McMahon that morning when alarming news arrived. What Lopez had thought impossible had been done. The Picasiri line had been outflanked. On December 5th, 1868, the Marquis of Caxias crossed the Paraguay River with 15,000 men, miles behind the Paraguayan defenses. And instead of marching north to Asuncion, he marched south on a collision course with Lopez's army. They were in the endgame now. The campaign I'm about to describe is known as the Decembrada, the December campaign, consisting of three battles, Itotoro, Ave, and Lomas Valentinas. These were shockingly bloody and ferocious battles, even for this war. While both sides were brave, the desperate courage of the Paraguayan soldier was almost unbelievable. These illiterate Guarani, teenagers and old men, starving, half-naked, barely armed, barely trained, fought like lions. They knew they were doomed, but they also knew that how they died was important. A glorious sacrifice to justify their national cause. This was the death ride of the Paraguayan army. Lopez's forces were trapped. To the south, Allied forces at the Picasiri Line. To the west, Brazilian ironclads on the Paraguay River. To the east, an impassable wetland. And to the north, Caxias, descending like a thunderbolt with the Brazilian army. Lopez ordered the dashing cavalry general Bernardino Caballero to take 5,000 men and hold off the Brazilian advance. He sent them to the best defensive position in the area, a deep raging river called the Itotoro, spanned only by a wooden bridge nine feet wide. On December 6, 1868, the Brazilians arrived to see the Paraguayans awaiting them across the Itotoro Bridge. Caballero held a strong position. The Brazilians would have to funnel their forces across the bridge, making easy targets and negating their numerical superiority. Caxias ordered General Osorio upriver to look for a different crossing point. But when Osorio couldn't find one, Caxias had no choice but to attack. The Battle of Itotoro began when the Brazilians launched their first attack late in the morning. The infantry of the 2nd Corps, Former slaves and jaded veterans and reluctant conscripts surged across the bridge. Charging through sheets of musket fire, they reached the enemy lines only by sheer force of will. Brazilian and Paraguayan battalions merged into a furious melee, blue-coated black freedmen from Bahia thrust to thrust with the Guarani teenagers of Villarica. Eventually, the Brazilians had to fall back. They were chopped to pieces. Caxias ordered another assault. Five regiments of cavalry from Rio Grande do Sul, Mestizo Cowboys. The horses thundered across the bridge, almost irresistible. Under this onslaught, the Paraguayan teenagers panicked and started to retreat, before an old veteran shouted in Guarani that they were worse than old women. The teenagers' cheeks flushed with shame. They turned around and drove the Brazilian cavalry back. The Battle of Itotoro sucked men in like a whirlpool. Almost 16,000 soldiers rippled back and forth across this nine-foot-wide wooden bridge. Paraguayan teenagers fighting for the survival of their nation, shot and stabbed and kicked and punched against young black men fighting for their freedom. Officers died by the dozen, including two Brazilian generals. 
An observer described it as like a battle between red and black ants, mindless courage and blind fury. The Brazilians made five assaults on the bridge and all failed. Caballero and his ragtag army held them off, outnumbered by three to one, so unyielding that it seemed almost superhuman. Kashia saw his men hesitate, shrinking back, intimidated by the courage of their foes. The battle hung by a thread, and his moment was here. The Marquis of Kashias drew his sword. Allegedly, it had been in its scabbard for so long that it came out with a cloud of rust and spider webs. Kashias raised his sword and shouted, All of you who are Brazilians, follow me! Then the 64-year-old aristocrat spurred his horse towards the bridge. His men swarmed forward in their thousands, following his upraised sword. Thousands of soldiers, white, brown, or black, free or slave, north or south, volunteer or conscript, answered the call of Brazil. Cachias at their head, musket balls whizzing through his gray hair, they crossed the bridge and shattered the Paraguayan line. Caballero's men broke and retreated to the south. Itotoro was one of the most savage battles of the Paraguayan War. The legendary Paraguayan stand came with a price of 1,200 casualties, far less than the Brazilians, who suffered 3,000. For the Marquis of Caxias, it was his finest hour. His personal example had turned the tide of the battle. Leadership matters. The Brazilians set off in pursuit. The summer weather was searing, and they were covered with dust and sweat as they chased the Paraguayans down. Lieutenant Dionisio Serquiera, once a volunteer, now a hardened war veteran, remembered it as one of the bitterest marches he ever saw, with soldiers dying from heat stroke. But soon the sky darkened above them. A storm was coming. Caballero halted his Paraguayan force behind a stream known as the Ave, a poor defensive position for his desperately outnumbered army. But when he asked permission to retreat, Lopez replied, Well, if you won't fight, I'll find someone who will. Caballero, probably thinking of firing squads, replied that of course he would fight. So he stood at the Ave as Cachias arrived on December 11th, 1868. Cachias had 22,000 men. Caballero had 5,500, outnumbered 4 to 1. The Paraguayans saw this enormous allied army unfolding in a semicircle, a massive blue wave about to devour them. A black belly of clouds thundered overhead. At 10 a.m., the allied artillery opened fire just as a thunderstorm burst. The Brazilian infantry and cavalry charged in screaming, and the Paraguayans screamed back, firing their muskets in the downpour, before both sides collided with a crunch. The Battle of Ave was defined by the word terror, a furious thunderstorm, a black shroud broken only by the flashes of guns and the spurts of blood. Muskets were drenched, rifles were turned into clubs and spears. Both sides collided over a fetid slurry of blood and bodies as men shot and grappled and stabbed and kicked and screamed and eviscerated each other in the torrent. General Osorio, Brazilian blood and guts, came up to rally his men in the storm, leading from the front as always. He was waving his saber, urging his men on, just as a musket ball struck him in the mouth and shattered his lower jaw. Osorio tried to fight through the pain and stay with his men, but soon he had to be carried from the field. The Brazilian soldiers had always seen Osorio as their lucky star, untouchable even in the thickest fighting. His wounding caused them to waver, hesitate, verging on panic. 
Once again, the Marquis of Cassius intervened, drawing his sword and leading his reserves down the hill. And once again, his intervention rallied his men. Brazilian infantry and cavalry surrounded the Paraguayan force until all that remained was a massive square of 3,000 infantry, shoulder to shoulder in the driving rain. Guys, by now, when I say Paraguayan courage, it seems like a cliché. But nothing I have described in this series matches the last stand at Ave. It should be mentioned in the same breath as Thermopylae, Masada, the Alamo, Little Bighorn. 3,000 Paraguayan teenagers surrounded, drenched, starving, exhausted, pitiful, knowing they were doomed, and they faced their destruction unflinchingly. Serquiera described the Paraguayan army being swept away as if by an avalanche as Brazilian artillery mowed them down. Under the black sky of Ave, lit by rocket explosions and rifle flashes, the Paraguayans stood their ground for three hours, refusing to surrender. They were annihilated. The Allied victory was total. Out of 5,500 Paraguayans engaged at Ave, 3,600 died, and 1,000 were taken prisoner, all of them too wounded to resist. Caballero barely survived. A Brazilian cavalryman grabbed his poncho and he had to slip out of it to escape. The Allies lost 800 men. Cassius gathered reinforcements and let his men rest before marching south for the killing blow. Lopez prepared for the final showdown. He withdrew most of the troops from the Picciri line and concentrated them around his headquarters at Itaibate. The last shreds of the Paraguayan army probably numbered around 8,000, most under the age of 16. Thompson, with 2,000 men, was to hold Angostura to the bitter end. The Paraguayans fortified their positions, preparing for the final stand. Lopez undertook some preparations of his own by ordering the final executions of the treason trials. Itaibate rang with firing squads as the Allies approached. Cachias moved on December 21st. He sent his protege, General Joao Manuel Mena Barreto, to attack the Picasiri line from the rear, while the Argentines attacked it from the front. Barreto's attack easily overwhelmed the skeletal garrison, killing or capturing most of its defenders. Meanwhile, Cachias took the main Brazilian army to storm Lopez's stronghold at Itaibate, the high point of the hills known as the Lomas Valentinas. Lopez, Eliza Lynch by his side, gathered his officers atop the hill. The sky was pitch black, but no rain this time, just a dull throb of humid tension. Lopez told them, Here the war will be concluded. The Paraguayans knew they were doomed, but most of them seemed to be relieved. At least it would be over. Cachias began the Battle of Lomas Valentinas with a massive assault from two infantry columns, covered by artillery fire. Dionisio Cerquiera and his 16th Battalion were in the first wave. We started to climb up the slope. The cannonade began, tearing into us mercilessly. Like rain, the volleys of musketry fell down upon the brave men of the 16th Battalion and quickly decimated the ranks. As we neared the opposite slope, there were but a few of us left. The ground overflowed with soldiers of the 16th. I had no idea where the commanding officer was, nor the major. Both had fallen. Suddenly, I felt on my cheek a sharp and heavy blow, like a hammer. I fell from the saddle, passing out. Serquiera would recover to fight again. His 16th Battalion lost two-thirds of its men that day on the Lomas Valentinas. 
The Brazilians forced the Paraguayan trenches through sheer weight of numbers, a human bulldozer ascending the heights. Thousands fell on both sides, the Paraguayans flinging themselves at the Allied army with mindless, futile courage. Soon the Brazilians were within a hundred yards of the summit and Lopez's headquarters. It was the first time Lopez had been in battle. Captain Centurion reported that he continued to issue orders within rifle shot of the enemy, but he never got too close. Certainly no personal displays of courage like Osorio or Casillas or Diaz. Centurion and the other officers on Lopez's staff took positions in the firing line, along with cooks, slaves, serving women, and the wounded, all grabbing muskets and swords and even lances. Their desperate defiance just managed to beat back the last Brazilian assault. The sun went down on December 21st with the shattered Paraguayan army still clinging to the hill. Martin McMahon described the fighting as desperate as any he had seen in the American Civil War. He remembered. The condition of things within Lopez's lines was deplorable. Many children, almost unnoticed, were grievously wounded and silently waiting for death. Casillas walked the lines personally that night, reassuring his men, lifting their spirits, as rain began to pour. The Brazilians had suffered horrific losses, almost 4,000 men. But for all their courage, the Paraguayan army had dwindled to a fragment, barely 1,800 men left. Even with their losses, the Allies had ten times that number. Low-level fighting continued for the next several days. The Brazilians drenched Itaivate with artillery day and night. Paraguayan boys covered in blood and grime, exhausted, starving, and sleepless, took cover in the trenches, waiting for the final Allied attack. They knew they were hopeless to stop. Lopez knew the end was nigh. He asked McMahon to escort Eliza and the children to safety. McMahon agreed, but Eliza Lynch refused to leave. She decided to stay with Lopez to see what happened. For once, she wasn't looking out for number one. McMahon, who was way overstepping his authority as a diplomat, by the way, escorted the younger Lopez children to safety across the lagoon. Lopez awoke Centurion that night so the staff officer could bear witness to his will, which left all his possessions to Eliza and the children. On December 24th, Casillas sent a message offering Lopez a final chance to surrender. Lopez's reply was delivered by Major Juan Francisco Lopez, 15 years old, his and Eliza's eldest son. The, the reply was defiant. Lopez noted that he had been the one to offer peace in 1866 at Yataiti Cora. My initiative met with no answer but the contempt and silence of the Allied governments. I then saw that the war was against the existence of the Republic of Paraguay. Placing the fate of my country in the hands of the God of Nations, I am disposed to continue fighting until that God and our arms decide the definite fate of our cause. There would be no surrender independence or death. After celebrating a dreary, bloody Christmas, Casillas placed the Argentine and Uruguayan divisions up front for the final attack. The Argentines had accused Casillas of denying them their share of the glory, and Casillas said, you want to help? And be my freaking guest. On December 27th, Argentines on the left, Uruguayans on the right, they ascended the Lomas Valentinas. And they swept all resistance before them. The Allies swarmed up the hill, shouting, firing, and stabbing with their bayonets. The Paraguayans resisted ferociously, defiantly, but it was hopeless. 
Like a rising unstoppable tide, the Allies surrounded the hilltop, where General Caballero and a handful of survivors awaited them. Caballero passed around a flask of Kanya liquor and asked the men to make one last charge. No one stepped forward, until Ramona Martinez, one of Lopez's slave girls, drew a sword and volunteered to make the last attack. She is remembered today as the Paraguayan Joan of Arc, but really, she wasn't. She was just another woman ready to die for her nation. The men and women of Lopez's household charged into the teeth of the Argentine bayonets, and it was over. Silence reigned on the blasted hilltop, pierced only by the cries of Paraguayan child soldiers begging for water. The Battle of Lomas Valentinas ended not with a bang, but hundreds of whimpers. The December campaign had been victorious. Casillas' lightning maneuvers and aggressive tactics had destroyed the Paraguayan army. There were no organized units left to stop the Allied march to Asuncion. It was a total victory, except for one thing. One devastating mistake that blackened Casillas' triumph. For some reason, Brazilian cavalry failed to block the escape routes from Itaibate. Casillas was criticized for this failure, at the time and ever since, because hundreds escaped the final destruction. These included General Caballero, Captain Centurion, Eliza Lynch and her children, and of course, Francisco Solano Lopez. Casillas' failure to capture the Paraguayan leader would have devastating consequences. Despite the ruin of his nation and the destruction of his army, Lopez refused to admit defeat. He wasn't beaten yet, and the Paraguayan War would continue. It should have been over. The December campaign shattered the Paraguayan army. Most of its soldiers were killed or captured. The survivors fled in scattered bands, nothing resembling an organized unit. They had lost their artillery, their supplies, their weapons. The army had ceased to exist. The Allies still had one loose end to tie up. George Thompson still held the river fortress of Angostura. He had around 2,000 men and plenty of heavy artillery. But after Lomas Valentinas, he didn't see the point in resisting. On December 30th, Thompson surrendered the fortress. The Paraguayans marched into captivity, and George Thompson called a fast ship back to England, where he wrote his memoir of the conflict that I have quoted so often in this series. After the war is over, Thompson would return to Paraguay, marry a Paraguayan woman, and work for the railroad, dying in 1875. But at this point, he's essentially out of this story. Lopez had lost his defensive expert and the last organized units in his army, and now the Allies had full control of the Paraguayan River, the last river of destiny. Nothing stood in their way. On New Year's Day 1869, Brazilian troops landed in Asuncion. Caxias arrived a few days later and declared the Paraguayan War officially over. Like, hey Lopez, we destroyed your army and took your capital. War's over. Those are the rules. You should give up. But Lopez wasn't playing by normal rules. And by the time Casillas arrived, his men were already off the chain. 
the Brazilian soldiers went on a looting spree. They rampaged through the streets, totally out of control, tearing Asuncion apart in search of food or alcohol or valuables. One observer said, The Brazilian plunderers carried off whatever they could lay their hands on, even the timbers of the floors and the steps of the staircases, hacking and defacing whatever could not be carried away. Not a pane of glass or a mirror or lock was untouched, although the war was ostensibly waged against the tyrant Lopez and not against the people of Paraguay. It got worse. Basically any woman in the city was molested or raped. This had also happened during the December campaign, when Brazilian soldiers raped Paraguayan women captured at Ave. Some Brazilians justified their behavior by pointing to Paraguay's invasion of Mato Grosso when they had kidnapped and raped Brazilian women. Like, yeah, what about them? But they did at first as not an excuse. Rape is never justifiable. It is always an act of violence against the helpless. And these women had nothing to do with Paraguayan crimes. Revenge is not justice. The sack of Asuncion was a shameful event, widely criticized by foreign observers. It also undermined all the Allied talk about liberating Paraguay. Yeah, you're saving us from Lopez, who's going to save us from you? The Argentines and Uruguayans claimed that they had nothing to do with the looting, but somehow Lopez's chairs ended up in the government house in Buenos Aires. Wonder how those got there. Probably the same way stuff ends up in the British Museum. You might have wondered why Cassius, famous for his iron discipline, didn't lay down the law. Normally he would have, but the general's health had collapsed. Keep in mind, Cassius was 65 years old, he had spent the last two years on campaign, and he had pushed himself past his limits during the battles of December. By the time Cassius arrived in Asuncion, he could barely stand, and only a few days later he passed out during a church service. It was time for the old man to go home. Cassius requested permission to resign. Don Pedro said, No, bro, I know you're sick, get better soon, but I need you to stay and finish the war. But Cassius defied Pedro's orders and called a boat for Rio de Janeiro. He arrived to zero welcome, zero parades, zero recognition. It was a deliberate insult from Pedro, who was furious that Cassius had deserted his post. But some years later, Emperor and General reconciled. Then Cassius was showered with awards and titles, including the title Duke, the only dukedom to be created in the history of the Brazilian Empire. The Duke of Cassius is the icon of Brazilian military history. Sampaio, Maie, and Osorio, the heroes of Tuyuti, are the Brazilian army's patrons of infantry, artillery, and cavalry. But Cassius is the patron of the whole army, remembered nationwide and memorialized as the Iron Duke, he holds a place in his nation's military history, kinda like George Washington. But Pedro had a point. Cassius had left the job unfinished. His failure to capture Lopez at Lomas Valentinas was coming back to haunt the Triple Alliance. By January 1869, Paraguay was disintegrating. The army was shattered, the capital was sacked, the countryside ravaged by famine and disease, the vast majority of the men were dead, most of the survivors were refugees. Martin McMahon described the sad state of the Paraguayan people. They have abandoned their growing crops, their houses, and all their possessions. They are now almost unclothed, thousands without shelter, many without food or the means of obtaining it. The war will only cease when the Paraguayan race is wholly exterminated. But the war didn't cease. 
In defiance of logic, reason, or common sense, Francisco Solano Lopez was determined to fight on. The day after Lomas Valentinas was over, Lopez made a proclamation to his people. Our Lord intends to test our faith and constancy in order to give us a greater and more glorious fatherland, and all of you should feel hardened, as do I, to avenge the loss and to save the nation. Lopez set up his new government in the hills known as the Cordilleras, 30 miles southeast of Asuncion, and called on his people to rally to his banner. And despite his rotten leadership and selfish behavior throughout this war, many Paraguayans did. It wasn't just fear or blind loyalty, though those were definitely factors. There was something else here. The Paraguayans believed that they were fighting for their very existence, that no matter how hopeless it looked, they had to go on or go extinct. The survivors of the December campaign came to rejoin their leader. Martin McMahon remembered one young soldier who had escaped Thompson's surrender at Angostura. There came a boy sergeant of 14 years, dripping from the swamps, through which, for nearly 30 hours, he had swum or waded, and he told the humiliating story of the surrender and how he, with many others, scorned the surrender, betook himself to the swamps, and rested not until he stood before his chief. All this he told with streaming tears and voice almost choked with sobs. I don't have to tell you guys that there is something deeply wrong with this. Nationalism is a hell of a drug. These survivors were just enough foundation for a new Paraguayan army. Soon Lopez had around 12,000 soldiers, which was remarkable. After all, almost the, all the men and teenagers were dead by now. Where did the new soldiers come from? Well, Lopez's recruiting party scoured the Paraguayan countryside, conscripting anyone and everyone. They could be sick or elderly or disabled or mentally impaired, or they could be kids. And we're talking eight, nine, ten years old by this point. This recruitment was not voluntary in the, for the most part. Boys were pulled kicking and screaming from their mothers. Anyone who resisted could expect Lopez's enforcers to shoot them or stab them or cut their throats. Centurion protested this cruelty, but Lopez said, The fatherland doesn't need its bad sons for its defense. Many Paraguayan women followed their boys to the front to look after them. Besides, they had nowhere else to go. This child army was sustained by mothers and sisters, feeding and cleaning and caring for them, singing the boy soldiers to sleep at night. Lopez set up his capital at the town of Piribebui. Refugees flocked to the Cordilleras, looking for food or shelter or protection from the Allies. 100,000 Paraguayans eventually gathered under Lopez's banner, which may have been most of the country at this point. Lopez's arsenals at Ibiqui and Cacupe began forging new artillery to replace the pieces lost at Lomas Valentinas. By now, his infantry had literal antique muskets, old hunting weapons, or museum pieces. Some of them even carried spears. You might wonder, what does Lopez think he's going to accomplish? Like, when your army is elementary schoolers with spears, you've lost. You have lost the war. All you're doing is dragging it out. How do you think this is going to end? What are you doing to your country? Why can't you just admit defeat? But Lopez's ego his self-image, his twisted sense of duty, wouldn't let him admit defeat. He believed that he had to keep fighting, had to see this thing through. Plus, Lopez was pretty detached from reality by now. 
as Paraguay continued its death spiral, he retreated into fantasy land. He spent his days at Pidebebui reading, listening to Eliza play piano, playing with his kids, treating his staff to long diatribes on philosophy and religion. Eliza continued to take her pick of confiscated jewelry and still balled up huge tracts of land. She was still looking out for number one. So Lopez ruled what was left of the Paraguayan Republic from the Cordilleras, and by April 1869, he was even launching raids against the Allies. Paraguay wasn't dead yet. If Lopez's decision to continue the war seems crazy, it seemed equally crazy to the Triple Alliance. It had been four years. They had captured Humaita, destroyed Lopez's army, occupied Asuncion. How the hell is this war still going? The Brazilians and Argentines were like, we're done, we've won, we just want the war to end. Forget about Lopez, declare victory, make peace, and get out. But the Allies kind of needed the government to make peace with. Lopez is clearly not giving up anytime soon, so let's look for alternatives. Pedro sent his minister, José María da Silva Peranjos, to set up a provisional government in Asuncion. Peranjos recruited local elites and exiles who had fled Lopez's regime before the war, including members of the Paraguayan Legion. He gathered them up and said, Congratulations, you're the new Paraguayan government. Your first job is to negotiate a peace treaty. Of course, most Paraguayans didn't view this government as legitimate. They saw it as a Brazilian puppet, and they weren't wrong. Lopez ordered vicious reprisals against anyone who collaborated with the provisional government, sending his cavalry out to punish so-called traitors. This got ugly fast. At least one incident where Lopez's men stabbed a woman and her daughters to death for trying to flee to Allied lines. Patriotism, xenophobia, and a healthy dose of terrorism kept most Paraguayans loyal to Lopez. So even though the Allies wanted, needed the war to be over, the only way to accomplish that was to get rid of Lopez. And that meant one last campaign. The Allies would have to march into the Cordilleras and crush what was left of the Paraguayan Republic. But with the Iron Duke gone, they needed a new leader. Just before the war, Dom Pedro's daughter Isabella had married a young French prince, Gaston de Orléans, Comte de Eu, or the Count of Eu. Yes, a French dude named Gaston. Get your Disney jokes out of the way now. I'm going to keep calling him Gaston, so I don't have to keep saying Comte de Eu, Comte de Eu, I can't do it. Dom Pedro was not fond of his son-in-law, a flashy, arrogant, kind of obnoxious young noble. Okay, the Disney jokes aren't entirely misguided. Didn't help that Gaston was constantly begging Pedro for a military command, and Pedro kept turning him down throughout the Paraguayan War, but now he said, you know what? Fine, I don't care, as long as you get rid of Lopez. So on March 22, 1869, the 27-year-old Gaston de Orléans Comte de took command in Asuncion, the final supreme commander of the Triple Alliance. Gaston found a demoralized, war-weary army, thousands of soldiers who had seen years of service and just wanted to go home. But Gaston actually had a decent level of military experience, and he got the army back in shape, restoring discipline and morale. Like, guys, I know you're tired. I know you're homesick. Just one more campaign, and it'll be over. Gaston started the Cordilleras campaign, the final campaign of the Triple Alliance, in May 1869. He had around 28,000 Brazilians, 4,000 Argentines, and a few hundred Uruguayans, 
all well-equipped, well-trained, and battle-hardened, to fight Lopez's 12,000 boys and old men. Some of our old friends came along for the final campaign. General Osorio had recuperated and resumed his command. Dionisio Cerquiera had also recovered from his wound. And Captain Alfredo Descranola Talne, chronicler of the retreat from Laguna, served on Gaston's staff. The Cordilleras campaign is controversial. It has been described as genocidal. That's a touchy topic. I'll address that at some point in the future. The argument is that continuing the war at this point was just barbaric. Like, Paraguay is already on the ground bleeding to death and you keep stomping them. If ending the war requires killing everyone in Paraguay, what the hell are we doing? These people have a point. But the Allies also had a point. After all, Paraguay was still fighting. The Allies were frustrated. Like, we want this to be over. We want to be done. We want to go home. But you won't give up and we'll keep killing you until you do. We didn't start this war, but we are going to finish it. If your nation would rather die than surrender, we will oblige you. Gaston planned a two-pronged offensive to surround Lopez's base at Piribebui. Osorio led the northern thrust with forces from the whole alliance, while Gaston took an all-Brazilian force south along Paraguay's only railroad between Asuncion and Cerro Leon. There had already been fighting along the railroad back in March 1869. A Brazilian patrol was ambushed by a Paraguayan train carrying an infantry company and a single cannon. Yeah, the Paraguayans are inventing armored trains now with zero industrial base. This thing is probably held together with like rubber bands and duct tape. Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. That's probably the last time I'm going to use that phrase because this war is about to stop getting funny really fast. Gaston also sent a small Uruguayan force to destroy Lopez's ironworks at Ibiqui. The raid freed a few half-dead British experts and destroyed one of Lopez's last arms factories. Again, it is incredible. Like, the Uruguayans get there and there's cannons still in the process of being cast. This crumbling economy was still forging artillery until the very last minute. Gaston's columns, long winding serpents of hardened allied soldiers, looted and burned and killed their way across the Cordilleras. Cerquiera was appalled at the desolation of Paraguay. Most all the fields were barren, the horses and cattle were dead, the towns were nearly deserted. Many Paraguayans followed the allied army begging for food. Cerquiera remembered seeing their sunken eyes and hollow figures dressed in rags, limping along or lying down to die by the road. The Allied advance was relentless. There were small battles at places like Tupipita, Sapuque, and the Pirapo River. Sometimes the Paraguayans even won, kinda, like when General Caballero turned the Allied vanguard back at Ibitimi on June 7th. But resistance was futile. The Allies were waging a total war, where Gaston's men destroyed any food or livestock they found. This has been compared to Sherman's march through Georgia, but it was much worse. The Allied columns encircled the Cordilleras, cutting off outside supply, letting starvation and disease do the killing for them. Thousands of Paraguayans died as the noose tightened around what was left of their nation. By August 1869, Gaston's armies were reaching their objective. Lopez's army had stretched itself too thin, and the Allied columns punched through his cordon. Gaston and Osorio closed in on Lopez's temporary capital at the small town of Piribebui. 
By now, the Paraguayans only had about 5,000 soldiers left, only 2,000 of which were at Piribebui. They faced Gaston's juggernaut of 20,000 men. The Allies attacked Piribebui on August 12, 1869. A 47-gun battery commanded by Emilio Maillé plastered the town for four hours. Paraguayan civilians screamed as cannonballs smashed through walls and ceilings. Then the Brazilian infantry attacked, followed by squadrons of cavalry. The battle was never in doubt. The Paraguayan boy soldiers died, clutching muskets that were taller than they were. Paraguayan women joined the battle, throwing bottles and bricks and handfuls of dirt until they too were cut down. The Brazilian cavalry swarmed in, led by Caxias' protege, the brilliant General Mena Barreto. As he waved his sword in triumph, two musket balls hit him in the stomach. The Brazilian soldiers, horrified to see their beloved leader die, snapped. Some say that Gaston, who had been close to Barreto, ordered what happened next. But even if he didn't order it, he didn't stop it. The Brazilians went berserk. They bayoneted the Paraguayan wounded and slashed the throats of prisoners. They executed the Paraguayan commander in front of his wife, beheaded a schoolteacher in front of his pupils. Serquiera remembered finding the mother and child, killed by the same rifle bullet, dead at the church door beneath the image of Christ. Worst of all, the Brazilians set the Paraguayan hospital on fire, burning 600 men and women alive. This behavior was not universal. Serquiera saved one 12-year-old Paraguayan soldier from being killed by his comrades, and the massacre was more a brief outburst than a systematic purge. The Brazilians got their anger out and then just stood there numbly. Most of the civilians did survive. But Pierre de Bebui was the worst Allied war crime of the Paraguayan War. And at its root was sheer anger that they were still forced to fight this war. They were bitter, exhausted. They wanted to go home. They wanted the war to end. And at this point, Paraguayan courage just made them angry. The fact that they were fighting children infuriated them. Why don't you give up? It doesn't make any sense. Why won't you give up? Lopez and his entourage had evacuated Pier de Bebui before the attack, leaving behind most of their possessions. Captain Talney was one of the first to enter Madame Lynch's house, where he found her grand piano and sat down to play it. Behind him, Brazilian soldiers burned the state archives of Paraguay, countless documents lost forever to future historians and Gaston got his troops moving again, hot on Lopez's heels. Lopez fled, Eliza and the kids and his entourage with him. Behind them marched the last starving remnant of the Paraguayan army, 3,000 boy soldiers under General Caballero. Behind them came the Allies, enormous, furious, determined to hunt Lopez down. On August 16, 1869, the Allies caught Caballero's forces in an open field, with their backs to a river. This battle has had many names throughout the years. Uh, it was called New Guazu for a long time. The Allies called it Campo Grande. Nowadays, it is usually called Acosta New. But Paraguayans also call it La Batalla de los Niños, the Battle of the Children. The Allies had at least 20,000 well-fed, well-armed, battle-hardened Brazilian and Argentine soldiers. Against them stood 3,000 Paraguayans, most between the ages of 8 and 14. Many of them wore fake beards to disguise their youth. 
Their bellies groaned with hunger as they raised their muskets and spears and swords and prepared to fight. And to everyone's surprise, they did fight. They held the field for five hours, and they died. The tactical details aren't important. These boys didn't stand a chance. The Brazilian cavalry ran them down, minier balls passed through their bodies, and the artillery wiped them away. The mothers and sisters, the women who followed them to war, they died too. By the end of the Battle of Acosta New, the Paraguayans had been obliterated. Caballero escaped, again, with only a handful of survivors. Dionisio Cerquiera had fought his 23rd and final battle, and he never forgot it. He could never stop thinking about the high number of soldaditos we saw, plastered with blood, with their little legs broken, having never reached the age of puberty. Cerquiera found one Paraguayan boy soldier hiding in a wagon. He couldn't have been more than 12 years old. His leg had been shattered by a cannonball. He was leaning against his 10-year-old sister, sobbing from the pain. Cerquiera sent the boy and his sister back to the hospital. They survived, at least this one. The victory made him and his comrades feel hollow, empty, almost broken. Our soldiers all said that there is no pleasure in fighting so many children. Other Allied soldiers had no mercy left. Brazilian cavalry roamed the smoking battlefield, running their lances through the bodies of wounded boys. When they were done, they threw the Paraguayan corpses into a pile and set them on fire. Soon the flames spread across the field, consuming the wounded as they lay helpless in the mud. Captain Talnay saw a Paraguayan boy on the ground, too wounded to move, screaming as the flames grew closer. Unable to get to him and save him, Talnay ordered a soldier to shoot him, a mercy kill, before he burned to death. The flames consumed him. They consumed them all, the boys and their mothers and their sisters and the future of their nation. Only heaps of ash marked the graves of Los Niños Martires. Paraguayan historians are rightfully bitter about this battle. The Allies behaved with enormous cruelty. But these children had no fucking business being here. Who sent them here? Who put muskets in their hands? Who told them to wear fake beards and pretend to be men and die like men? I think we know. Acosta knew was the last major battle, but it wasn't the end. How long would the war go on? Only one man could answer that, a man who would not admit defeat with his last breath. The Paraguayan War would not end could not end until Francisco Solano Lopez was dead, dead, dead. It should have been over. The Cordilleras campaign crushed what was left of Lopez's Paraguayan Republic. Tens of thousands of men, women, and children died, mostly from disease and starvation, and the main body of the army was annihilated at a cost anew. On August 18, 1869, Allied cavalry caught the last ships of the Paraguayan Navy on the Manduvira River. 
The crews sank their vessels rather than let the Allies take them, an event which is recorded in a Paraguayan folk song. The Allied army spread out across the countryside, crushing the last embers of Paraguayan resistance. Francisco Solano Lopez and his party retreated through the small village of Caraguate, Allied cavalry thundering behind them. Gaston rolled into Caraguate on August 19th, having missed his quarry by hours. Lopez vanished into the vast wilderness of northeastern Paraguay, where even most Paraguayans feared to tread. The Allied government said, Great, let him go. We are going to figure out how to end this war. The Argentines already had one foot out the door. President Sarmiento had already pulled all his units out and sent them to occupy the Chaco, the disputed regions that Argentina wanted to gain in the peace treaty. Sarmiento was worried less about the fugitive Lopez and more about Brazil, which was fair because Brazil was already trying to wiggle out of the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. They didn't want to give Argentina the whole Chaco. They didn't want a strong Argentina to rise from the ashes of a defeated Paraguay. Like so many alliances at the end of a war, Brazil and Argentina were worried more about each other than Lopez. And Brazil had to beg Uruguay to keep its army in the war because Uruguay wanted to be done. The group project was finally collapsing. But despite the enormous amount of money the war was costing them, Brazil wasn't done. They were like, listen knuckleheads, this is not over until Lopez is called. Argentina and Uruguay were like, bro, he's finished. What can he do? Why are you still fixated on this? But Brazil's politicians weren't afraid of Lopez. They were afraid of their own army. Thousands of soldiers from the lower classes, including many freed slaves, and they posed a risk to the social order. The slave-owning aristocracy was terrified of these guys. Best if they stay in Paraguay as long as possible. So the hunt would continue and the war would go on, until Lopez was finally defeated. The Paraguayan provisional government began to govern what was left of their country and prepare for peace talks. They declared Lopez a criminal for good measure. But up in the hills, the only law that mattered was Lopez's law. For seven months after Acosta knew, Lopez and his miserable band of followers wandered through northeastern Paraguay. This was almost unmapped wilderness, a few scattered villages with a yawning void of civilization between them. Paraguayan historians call this journey the Via Crucis, the Stations of the Cross, a reference to Jesus' journey to the crucifixion, a trail of pain and misery and unimaginable hardships. This journey included less than a thousand boy soldiers, along with the last of Lopez's generals and staff, Generals Caballero and Resquin, Colonel Xaviero and Escobar, and Juan Centurion, recently promoted to full colonel. Hundreds, maybe thousands of desperate civilians accompanied them, many unwillingly. The soldiers forced civilians along at the point of the bayonet, and they went, emaciated, colorless figures limping after the army like ghosts. Many of them were Asuncion elites who hadn't been executed at San Fernando. They had just gotten a stay of execution. Prodded along by child soldiers with spears, the survivors of Paraguay's upper class died along the Via Crucis. And of course, Lopez brought his family. Eliza Lynch traveled in her carriage along with all their children, including 15-year-old Panchito, Juan Francisco Lopez, proud in his colonel's uniform, highest ranking of the boy soldiers. But Lopez's blood relatives, his mother Juana Pabla, his sisters Innocencia and Rafaela, and his brother Venancio, had been implicated in the treason plots. He had them kept under guard. 
The column marched into the interior, the Allied pursuers fading into the distance. They were covered with insects, plagued by sickness and malnutrition. There was barely any food. People survived on roots, honeycomb, horse carcasses, bitter oranges, and inedible plants. The phrase I kept seeing over and over that described these people was living skeletons. The Brazilians could follow the column by the trail of dead and dying women, and crowds of civilians who came in begging to surrender. If Lopez's guards called anyone trying to run away, they were executed on the spot. Francisco Solano Lopez was in a world of his own. He was always well-fed, constantly drunk, brooding, raving about his destiny and his nation. He saw enemies everywhere, even in the ranks of his closest companions. A stray remark from a random refugee implicated one of his bodyguards. When this guy was whipped within an inch of his life, he confessed that he planned to kill Lopez to save Paraguay. Lopez took this confession and spiled a new conspiracy theory. Sixty men of his own personal guard, including their officers, were selected for execution. Lopez commanded the firing squad personally, then prayed for hours at the local church. Lopez's suspicions fell on his family. He learned of an alleged plot to kill him involving Brother Venancio, Sisters Innocencia and Rafaela, and even his own mother, Juana Pabla. Venancio died, but Solano Lopez stayed his hand when it came to the women. He couldn't execute his mother and sisters, but they still had to be punished. Solano Lopez ordered the camp to watch as the women of his family were stripped, tied down, and horsewhipped until the flesh tore from their backs. Rafaela and Innocencia shrieked, but Juana Pabla just stared her son down as she endured the lashes. Lopez met the eyes of the woman who had birthed him and said nothing. You have to wonder if she regretted ever seeing him enter the world. The Lopez women were locked in wicker cages so low they could barely stand and carried along the Via Crucis. There was another notable victim of Lopez's wrath. Pancha Garmendia, allegedly the most beautiful woman in Paraguay, who Lopez had once attempted to rape. Even now, as a prisoner, she still rejected him, and Lopez didn't like when people said no. She was a shadow of her former beauty when she was placed before her executioners, and when the lances pierced her body, it was like pencils punching through paper. It was about this time that Eliza Lynch started to appear in camp covered with bruises. Lopez was beating her. But where else was she going to go? How would she and her children survive? Eliza Lynch, First Lady of Paraguay, bore the suffering, as they all did. The Via Crucis continued. In the words of historian Christopher Lucas, And so the army staggered on, further and further into the interior, both figuratively and literally, away from civilization. Men and women dropped like flies, boy soldiers and nursing mothers and skeletal babies littering the roadside. Lopez led them on, unyielding, unflinching, drunk, praying, ordering executions one day, laughing and joking the next. At one point, an officer leading part of the column took too long to catch up, and Lopez ordered his execution like, you, you're probably a traitor, die. Proving that black comedy still had some role to play in this story, the officer literally rolled his eyes as he walked over to the firing squad like, ah, same crap as always. He might have just been glad to get it over with. Another young officer, just before he was whipped to death, yelled at Lopez. Never forget, sir, that there is a god whom we must all face on the day of judgment, and even your excellency may soon have to account for this act of injustice. 
A shaken Lopez prayed for a very long time that day, and the army marched on, hostages in the hands of a tyrant, sinners in the hands of an angry god. 1869 turned into 1870. Through wind and rain, jungle and mud, across rivers and over mountains, the column withered and evaporated on the long journey. It seemed like Paraguay's agony would never end, that the last fragment of this dying nation would stagger on into eternity. But the end was coming. Every Via Crucis needs its Calvary. Cerro do Corá lies in the extreme northeast of Paraguay, near the Brazilian border. It is a depression near the Acadabana River, isolated and remote from almost any human settlement, one of the most remote locations in Paraguay. The 900 survivors of the Via Crucis arrived here in February 1870. After sending General Caballero to go round up some food, Lopez ordered them to make camp. The journey had ended. There was nowhere else to go. They had reached the end of the road that began in 1864. It is worth wondering what Lopez thought all this was going to accomplish, and why anybody still followed him. But one night, soon after they arrived at Cerro Corá, Lopez gathered the camp. He awarded a medal to every survivor of the long march from Acosta New, which, incredibly, raised their spirits, made them feel recognized and important. Lopez gave, gave his speech telling jokes at the expense of the combates, and people laughed. And then, in the flickering light of the campfires, Lopez told them why they were here. Even though this was a long quote, it's worth hearing exactly what Lopez said. It helps to explain why this was happening, why this continued, why he kept going, why they all kept going. It's maybe our most honest look into the mind of Francisco Solano Lopez. And a lot of the predictions he makes in this speech came true to the detriment of his nation. You who have followed me from the beginning know that I am ready to die together with the last of you on the final field of battle. That moment is nigh. You must know that the victor is the man who dies for a beautiful cause, not the man who remains alive at the scene of combat. We will all be reproached by the generation that emerges from this disaster, the generation that will take defeat into its soul like a poison. But generations to come will do us justice, acclaiming the grandeur of our immolation. I shall be mocked more than you. I will be the outcast of God and man, buried beneath a mountain of ignominy. But I will rise from the well of slander to rise ever higher in the eyes of our countrymen, and at length become that which our history has always meant me to be. Lopez is like, we're doomed. That's okay, because we will be remembered. If this was our destiny, my destiny, so be it. This is what history meant me to be. And they listened. The Paraguayans believed that no matter why this war happened, that their suffering, their trauma, their pain, their bloody trail of over five years had to mean something. And Lopez was telling them that it had. That their deaths were holy. That their destruction was beautiful. That their sacrifices justified the cause. At this point, Lopez sounds less dictator, more cult leader, doesn't he? But Paraguay had always been a little cultish, and if the leader they followed was unworthy of their devotion, well, that's not exactly unusual either, is it? One Paraguayan officer remembered, No one can justify the despotic acts of Lopez, but the truth is that in his life, in spite of his severity, he was loved by the army and by the other citizens too. 
Many people give the best of their love, the best of themselves, to those who least deserve it. The doom Lopez predicted was coming. Gaston had returned to Asuncion to help Minister Paranjos arrange the new Paraguayan government. He left the pursuit of Lopez to General Antonio Correa de Camara. It took a long time for Camara to pick up the trail, but by mid-February he learned that Lopez was at Cerro Corá. The Brazilians made tracks determined to run Lopez down. Maybe then they could finally go home. At 6.30 a.m. on March 1st, 1870, Camara struck the outer ring of Lopez's defenses. Hearing cannon fire, Lopez sent Centurion to go check it out. Centurion arrived to find the boy soldiers fleeing and Brazilian cavalry rushing the river. Lopez called the camp to arms. So began the Battle of Cerro Corá, the last stand. Centurion organized the initial defense, sending squads of boy soldiers to set up a perimeter. He was riding along the line when a bullet struck him in the mouth, knocking away teeth and nearly severing his tongue. Clasping his face, Centurion stumbled to the rear. The Brazilians swept forward, squadrons of surging cavalry and long lines of riflemen, crashing through the Paraguayan lines. The defenders crumbled before the onslaught. Lopez saw which way the wind was blowing. He gathered Eliza, the kids, and a couple of staff officers, then fled into the wilderness. Despite all he had done to her, his mother Juana Pabla screamed for him not to leave her, but he was gone. Lopez sent Eliza and the children one way, while he and his staff went another. He promised Eliza that he would catch up, hey babe, just one more narrow escape, before he galloped off into the hills. So, okay, pause for a second. There are like a dozen eyewitness accounts of the following events, and they do not match up. They all tell different versions and different details. No one was wearing a GoPro, so we'll never know the truth. This is the version I find most plausible. If so, if you hear something different, I didn't lie to you. I just did my best. Francisco Solano Lopez spurred his horse onwards, followed by probably about half a dozen Paraguayan staff officers. He was approaching the Aquidabana River when a sudden burst of rifle fire tore into his party. Several officers fell. General Resquin was thrown from his horse and captured. Lopez galloped away, followed by Colonel Aviero. Then a squad of Brazilian cavalry came rushing up out of the woods to surround him, demanding his surrender. One of the Brazilian cavalrymen was Corporal Francisco Lacerda, nicknamed Chico Diablo, the Little Devil. Yeah, I... I don't know how people get these nicknames either. Chico Diablo knew there was a bounty of 110 pounds on Lopez's head, and he wanted it, and he would get it. Lopez drew his sword and slashed at his assailants, trying to defend himself. Corporal Lacerda rushed forward with his lance and stabbed Lopez in the belly. Colonel Aviero came riding up and yelled at Lopez to run. The two men broke away from the Brazilians and rushed into the woods, but were soon forced to dismount due to the low-hanging trees. Stumbling through branches and thorn bushes, they reached the Aquidabana River. Aviero supported Lopez across the waist-deep water as the dictator continued to clutch his stomach, bleeding from the wound to his abdomen. His strength was fading, and Lopez was unable to climb the steep river bank. Aviero moved downriver to find a better spot. As Lopez leaned against the bank, clutching his wound, Brazilian troops appeared on the opposite bank. General Camara spotted Lopez and recognized him, and ordered his men to hold their fire. 
Then he yelled at Lopez, offering him one final chance to surrender. Then Francisco Solano Lopez did the only brave thing he had ever done in his life. Rising to his full height, Lopez shouted, Something. This quote is legendary. It's in every account of this war, the final dramatic gesture of bravado from the Paraguayan dictator. It was probably, Muero con mi patria. That is, I die with my country. It might also have been, Muero por mi patria. I die for my country. If it was the former, he was too late. Most of his people were already dead. If it was the latter, well, dying for his country might have been the worst thing he could have done to them. Either way, Lopez shouted his last defiance. A Brazilian soldier fired his rifle, and the Paraguayan war was over. Lopez slumped, just one more dead Paraguayan soldier, his blood flowing into the rivers of destiny. Brazilian cavalry caught up with Eliza Lynch's carriage. 15-year-old Colonel Juan Francisco Lopez screamed and waved his sword at the enemy horsemen. Their commander shouted at him to give up, and so did Eliza, begging her son to surrender. But Panchito was his father's son. A Paraguayan colonel never surrenders! A Brazilian lance ran him through. Eliza came out screaming, cradling her son's body. Her second oldest son, Jose Felix, came out to beg for mercy. Without a word, a Brazilian cavalryman lanced him, too. Eliza Lynch went silent, unmoving. Just one more Paraguayan woman watching her children die. Back at the camp, the Brazilians killed all who resisted, including old Vice President Sanchez, who died with a sword in his hands. Centurion and many others were taken prisoner. A decent number of Lopez's staff officers survived this final battle. Lopez's body was brought back on a stretcher, as were Eliza and her children, both living and dead. The Brazilians released Lopez's female relatives from their cages. Innocencia and Rafaela tried to attack Eliza, but the Brazilian soldiers held them back. Juana Pablo just wept over the bodies of her son and grandsons. The Brazilian soldiers cheered. The Paraguayan War was over. The news flashed back to Asuncion, to Buenos Aires, to Montevideo, to Rio de Janeiro, to London and Paris and Washington. General Camara recovered Lopez's sword and sent it to Dom Pedro. The rest of the Brazilian soldiers grabbed whatever loot and souvenirs they could find, and they all came to gawk at the body of Lopez. After five and a half years, South America's greatest conflict was finally at an end. Madame Lynch stood alone, dignified, still defiant. She asked General Camara for permission to bury her men. Still in her fine Parisian dress, Eliza began to dig with her bare hands, then a spare shovel, as the Brazilian soldiers watched. Then they took mercy on her and helped her. Eliza buried Francisco and her sons under simple crosses in the soil of Cerdo Corá. She might have been attacked by the other Paraguayans, but she had a white knight. This was Brazilian Colonel Cunha de Matos, the former Paraguayan POW that Eliza had cared for during his captivity. He would be Eliza's escort, protecting her mostly from her other Paraguayans until she left the country for good. The loose ends were all tied up, the final detachments destroyed or forced to surrender. 
In April 1870, General Caballero's food-gathering expedition ran into Brazilian forces. A few bullets over their heads, the last bullets fired in the Paraguayan War, were enough to convince them to surrender. General Camara escorted his prisoners to the nearby river port of Concepcion, where many of them would go into exile or captivity. Surprisingly, lots of them got along pretty well with their captors. Inocencia Lopez ended up having General Camara's baby. That's some good diplomacy right there. When the women arrived in Asuncion, they were greeted by Gaston of Oléon, the Comte du, who received them gracefully and invited them to a ball. They turned him down. After all, they didn't have anything to wear. Eliza Lynch left Paraguay with her surviving children, first to Buenos Aires and then to England. She struggled for years to have her land titles acknowledged, though the new Paraguayan government rejected her property claims as illegitimate. Even a brief return to Paraguay in 1875 failed to secure a single acre of land. They just kicked her right back out. Eliza also failed to regain the money she had sent overseas with Dr. William Stewart. Sounds like he screwed her over. She ended up suing him, and in the court cases that they had, there were these depositions and memorandums and records, and that tells us a lot of Eliza's life story, at least her version of events. Once she had been the most infamous woman of her age, but in 1886, a full 16 years after Cerdo Cora, Eliza Lynch died in Paris, alone, penniless, in obscurity. Maybe in her final moments she saw the ghosts of her lover and her children, fading away like gun smoke in a Paraguayan wind. The Paraguayan War was done, and Paraguay was crushed. Whatever the war might have been about, whatever causes might have justified this sacrifice, it was time to cope with defeat. The survivors of this tiny destroyed nation, the wrecked republic at the heart of the continent, had to rebuild. This required a different kind of bravery. Sometimes just getting up and facing the day is the most courageous act of all. But what did the future look like for these nations, forged and molded and transformed in South America's greatest war? And in Paraguay's case, was there a future at all? ended on March 1, 1870, with the death of Francisco Solano Lopez. It had lasted over five years, the largest, longest, and bloodiest conflict in South American history. The peace talks took even longer, almost a decade, mainly because Brazil and Argentina started arguing. They had been bitter rivals before the war, and now that Lopez was dead, there was no reason to play nice anymore. And the Paraguayan provisional government realized that they could play the two bigger powers off against each other. The big sticking point was the Treaty of the Triple Alliance, a document that everyone had come to rue. The treaty stated that both allies would receive their full territorial claims after the war. But the Brazilians were much less okay with this in 1870 than they had been in 1865. Brazil's claims were small, the Apa Branca region to the north of Paraguay but Argentina's claims included the entire Chaco. 
This was a massive chunk of territory, like two-thirds of Paraguay's land area, that would turn Argentina into the dominant power in La Plata. Brazil had not fought a massive, expensive war stomping Paraguay into the dirt just to see Argentina get all the profit from it. So the two countries spent years wrangling the final terms concerning the Chaco, and the Paraguayan provisional government sided with Brazil, who now was the lesser of two evils. After years of shenanigans, including times when Brazil and Argentina almost went to war, the Paraguayans suggested international mediation by the United States of America. Martin T. McMahon, Civil War hero and last ambassador to Lopez's government, had sympathy for the Paraguayan cause, and his reporting on the war caused Americans to see Paraguay as an underdog. And Americans love an underdog. So when the United States mediated, the outcome was surprisingly favorable to Paraguay. On November 12, 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes gave his verdict. Argentina would get a strip of the Chaco between the Bermejo and Pilcomayo rivers, but Paraguay would keep the rest, giving them the borders they currently have today. Hayes' verdict had saved Paraguay from losing half its territory, and to this day his name adorns a Paraguayan province, a city, a national holiday, and a soccer club, which are, the soccer club is often just called uh, Los Yankees. Rutherford B. Hayes, a mediocre president that no one in America cares about, is a Paraguayan national hero. Weird, right? The final treaties were signed in 1879. Paraguay lost 55,000 square miles of territory, 25%, but way less than what the Triple Alliance originally wanted. Brazil got the Apa Branco, Argentina got Misiones, and got a strip of the Chaco. And all these territories were basically worthless. Like, imagine years of arguing over the freaking Chaco of all places. God, I hope no one fights an actual war over this region in the 1930s or something. But anyway, Paraguay did have to allow international passage up the Paraguay River, and they did have to demilitarize, although the war had pretty much taken care of that last one. But Paraguay didn't have to pay any reparations, mainly because, you know, they didn't have a functioning economy anymore. And in spite of all their fears, Paraguay survived as an independent state. But what was left? Had they destroyed their country in order to save it? One observer asked, Is there a thanking Paraguayan left in the land? If there is, let him come forward and tell the world his country's future. I can compare Paraguay to nothing save a tree, withered, scorched, blighted by a flash of lightning. The land is cursed, and its future is a blank. The war racked up a hideous death toll. Uruguay lost 3,119 men, a very high proportion of the 5,500 they sent. Argentina lost some 36,000. Brazil's losses probably rise to around 100,000, more than the United States suffered in Vietnam. But then there is Paraguay. There is historical controversy over this number, and I'll go into that some other time. But according to the most reliable estimates, well over 250,000 Paraguayan men, women, and children died in this war, most from disease and starvation. From a pre-war population estimated at around 450,000 on the high end, this is a loss of 55%. The real percentage is probably 60 to 65. Almost two-thirds. 
To put this in perspective, Paraguay suffered a higher death rate than any country in any war in modern history, and it's not even close. From the World Wars, uh, Serbia lost 25% of its population in World War I, Poland lost 17% in World War II. But again, neither of those is close to 55%, let alone the higher numbers. And okay, let me put this let me put this very clear. I am not comparing these two events. They are not equ equivalent. But the death rate of Paraguayans in the Paraguayan War is roughly similar to the death rate of European Jews from 1939 to 1945. Again, these are not remotely equivalent events, but that's the scale we're talking about. On top of that, around 90% of Paraguayan men died in this war. 90! 90%! It wasn't unusual to find villages with no men whatsoever. Observers saw a country full of refugees like walking corpses, begging for food. Some of them boys of 10 or 12 years old, for the most part shockingly mutilated with bullet and saber wounds. Some reports even had jaguars stalking the streets of Asuncion. Paraguay gave an air of abandonment, emptiness, quiet, like a post-apocalypse. Paraguay's death rate in the war is cited as like one of those weird historical facts. 60%, 90% of all the men? That doesn't even sound real. But I've showed you guys how this happened. Total war, mass conscription, economic devastation, epidemic disease, famine, and the Paraguayan people's frankly astonishing capacity for self-sacrifice. They had fought far past the point that any other country would have just given up, throwing every resource they had into the furnace of war, including themselves. And they had lost, defeated, crushed, gutted, in a manner unparalleled in modern history. A defeat that was so cataclysmic that it shocked everyone who saw it. Was it worth it? That's a question that only they could answer. So what was the Paraguayan War worth to these four nations? Uruguay's role in the Paraguayan War had always been minimal, and the war holds minimal place in its history. It wasn't a defining experience for their national identity, the way it was for every other country in the conflict. To them, it had been Flores' personal war. It didn't really penetrate the national consciousness. It was seen as a sideshow to the civil wars between the Blancos and Colorados, and the struggle for Uruguayan autonomy from the great powers. But the Paraguayan War, in an indirect way, ended both of those struggles. The Allied intervention in 1864 confirmed the Colorado Party in power, a dominance they maintained until the 1960s. And the Paraguayan War restored the balance of power between Brazil and Argentina, a gray area where Uruguay could maintain its independence and autonomy. There would be no more wars fought over Uruguay, no more wars fought for control of La Plata. And this allowed the small republic to finally build its nation. From the 1880s to the 1910s, Colorado leaders Lorenzo Latorde, who was a veteran of Estero Bayaco, and Juan Batie y Ordones founded an education system and welfare state that became the envy of other nations. Uruguay built their nation not through war, but through stellar education and social programs, economic prosperity, and a tradition of liberal democracy. 
Modern Uruguay is one of the freest, most prosperous, most peaceful countries in the world. Honestly, you learn some Spanish sounds like top 10 countries to live in. Uruguay sees the Paraguayan War as a historical anomaly. Oh, that weird thing we were sort of involved in that one time. The only ones who commemorate it are the small Uruguayan military, who celebrate Infantry Day on July 18, 1866, the anniversary of Boqueron and the death of Colonel Palleja. Argentina went to war as a political Jenga tower, a collection of provinces unhappily united under a central government. But the men who fought and bled together at Tuyuti and Boqueron and Curupaiti came home with a sense that they were part of a nation, a single Argentine community that was more than just their city or province. Argentina's participation in the war, their shared experiences and sacrifices in the conflict, had been the flames that forged their nation. That same army had crushed the last Federalist uprisings during the war. And when Justo José de Urquiza was assassinated in 1870, the last of the great Federalist Caldillos was gone. The commerce and trade flowing into La Plata turned Buenos Aires into one of the Western Hemisphere's great commercial centers, strengthening the central government in the process. President Sarmiento continued Mitre's policies of modernization and progress and education and economic development, much more effectively because he wasn't trying to also play general. After 50 years of civil war and political anarchy, the centralist vision of a unified Argentine nation was triumphant. But despite its importance, the Paraguayan War didn't leave much of a hold on the Argentine consciousness. It was never popular. It was largely seen as Bartolome Mitre's great mistake. Mitre remained one of Argentina's most prolific writers and journalists until his death in 1906, and he wrote pamphlet after pamphlet trying to defend his war record, trying in vain to justify and excuse the sacrifice of Kurupaiti. It seemed like Mitre was the only one thinking about the war by then. Argentina had moved on. Argentina experienced an economic boom after the war. This went hand-in-hand hand with the ruthless war of conquest against the Indians of Patagonia, a war that bears more than a little resemblance to America's Indian wars, as above the equator, so below. The Indians, as well as the old mestizo gauchos, were swamped by waves of white immigrants from Europe, especially Italy and Spain, who in many cases outright replaced the former inhabitants. This was a deliberate policy of replacement by the Argentine government. They wanted to bring in more white people to um, civilize and progress the country of Argentina. That's why Argentina is remarkably European-descended compared to every other country in South America today. Argentina would become one of the most prosperous countries in the world by the early 20th century, a massive agricultural exporter. Like, in 1913, it was competitive with the United States. The phrase, rich as an Argentine, was a real thing people said. But the Great Depression of the 1930s killed the Argentine Golden Age. Its democracy collapsed into a string of military dictators, most famously Juan Perón. Argentina fell into a long economic slump and political instability that continues to vex it to this day. There was one time that another Argentine leader decided that a good war was just the thing to bring his nation together. Like the old border disputes with Paraguay, the issue was a colonial anomaly, a few bits of land that no one should have cared about. 
But just like Mitre in 1865, Leopoldo Galtieri figured a short victorious war would unify his nation. So in 1982, Argentina launched a war to seize the Falklands, aka the Malvinas, from Great Britain. Didn't go well, but that's a story for another day. The Paraguayan War had been a triumph for Dom Pedro II and his imperial Brazilian government. Pedro had prosecuted the war to the bitter end, believing that his nation's honor demanded the defeat of Lopez and his regime. By the end of the conflict, Brazil was the unquestioned great power of South America, but it had cost them dearly. Brazil had taken out enormous loans, and the interest payments would hamstring the economy well into the following decades, weakening the imperial government in the process. On the other hand, Dom Pedro felt able to make his push against slavery. He had openly proposed abolition in 1867, but Parliament rejected it. That was when the war was going badly. But now the war was won and his hand was strengthened. Abolitionism had become much more popular, especially in the army. Finally, all the former slaves who had fought for Dom Pedro were coming home, living proof that they were men, citizens, Brazilians as well. In 1871, Dom Pedro signed the Free Womb Law, which proclaimed that all children of slaves would from now on be born free. From that point on, the institution crumbled bit by bit in erosion that had begun with the Paraguayan War. Brazilian slavery finally ended with the Golden Law of 1888. Millions of black Brazilians, including Paraguayan War veterans, cheered and celebrated in the streets. After almost four centuries, Brazil had become the last country in the Western world to abolish slavery. The two decades after the war were the Brazilian Golden Age. The empire was a prosperous rising power, making enormous strides in every area, even women's rights. And Dom Pedro II's regime had guided Brazil to this point. No government on earth seemed more successful and stable. But the final consequence of the Paraguayan War was about to come home. Before the war, the Brazilian army and navy had been small institutions, neglected and underfunded by the government. But the war changed that. The government had poured mountains of resources into the military so that they could defeat Paraguay, and the army went on to forge a nation. Tens of thousands of men from across Brazil fought together and developed a sense of unity. This was especially noteworthy amongst the officer corps. They were developing a new Brazilian patriotism, one that was increasingly devoted to the nation, not the monarchy. And the army was emerging as a political actor with an agenda of its own. The army's transformation terrified the Brazilian leadership. By giving so much power to the army, by making all those concessions to Caxias, by forming a national army with national motivations and their own goals rather than imperial goals, they had created a monster. The Brazilian government tried to bust the army back down to pre-war status, to turn the, back the clock, to put the genie back into the bottle. But the army didn't want to go back into the bottle. We went to war. We shed our blood. We saw our friends die at Tuyuti and Lomas Valentinas, only to come back so you can pretend your titles of nobility make you better than us. The way we see it, you aren't Brazil. We're Brazil. The monarchy doesn't represent us anymore. We want a republic. We want a cause worthy of our sacrifice. 
The 1880s saw increasing signs of insubordination, public dissent, and political agitation from the military. Finally, on November 15, 1889, a cadre of Paraguayan war heroes led a military coup that replaced the empire with the first Brazilian republic. Pedro II was old, tired, unwilling to fight. He left for Europe without even trying to save his throne, dying in 1891 in Paris, exiled and never returning to the nation that he had served so well. And guys, I'm not a fan of monarchy in general, but the new government was honestly a freaking downgrade. It was a republic in name only. In reality, just another Latin American military dictatorship ruled by army and navy strongmen and capitalist oligarchs. The age-old question, you build a military to save you from your enemies, but who's going to save you from your own military? Pedro II and the end of the Brazilian Empire deserve more time. So guess what? There's going to be a short round. I don't know when it's going to be, probably very late this month or early January. Stay tuned. Either way, the army that Pedro forged to build his nation and win the Paraguayan War had destroyed his government and ended the Brazilian Golden Age. There's a lesson in there somewhere. So now we come to Paraguay. On July 24th, 1961, the 134th birthday of Francisco Solano Lopez, an enormous crowd watched a gun carriage roll through the streets of Asuncion. Paraguay's dictator, General Alfredo Stroessner, led the procession. He led it past the Pantheon of the Heroes, where Francisco Solano Lopez and his sons lie buried, up Francisco Solano Lopez Avenue, towards the Ministry of Defense. On the gun carriage sat a simple brass urn, recently arrived from France, wrapped in the Paraguayan tricolor. Soldiers, priests, men, women, and children gazed on in reverence. The entire military was turned out in dress uniforms and stood at attention as the gun carriage passed. The Paraguayan people were paying respects to one of their own. Eliza Lynch was coming home. In 1870, Paraguay was shattered. The economy was ruined, famine was rampant, the country had lost a fourth of its territory, the capital was sacked. Not to mention the human losses, which left the whole country in mourning. It took decades to recover on an economic and demographic level. It took 30 years for Paraguay's population to come back to what it had been before the war. There is a famous anecdote that the Pope approved polygamy in Paraguay after the war just so the population could recover. He didn't improve it, but polygamy was de facto the case in Paraguay for several years after the war, just because there were so few men left and so many women. There's a decent argument that Paraguay never recovered from the war. Not psychologically. After all, how does a nation cope with a defeat? on such a massive scale. Paraguay was in political chaos for the rest of the 19th century. Two political parties emerged from the wreckage, the progressive modernist anti-Lopez liberals, most of whom were members of the provisional government or former exiles or members of the Paraguayan Legion. They were opposed by the traditionalist conservative pro-Lopez Colorados. The Colorados were led by none other than Bernardino Caballero, and a cadre of men including Juan Centurion, who had followed Lopez to Cerro Corá, like all the main Colorado leaders had been at Cerro Corá. And their political struggles were waged less over the future than over the past, 
how their nation should deal with defeat, what Lopez's place was in their history. The memory of their defeat and the memory of Lopez has overwhelmed Paraguay ever since. For decades after the war, official opinion was very anti-Lopez. But in the early 20th century, a new wave of writers and intellectuals, led by Juan O'Leary, tried to rediscover their national identity. They were disappointed with the present, with Paraguay's poverty and isolation and global irrelevance and lack of patriotism. And disappointment with the present makes the past look better. O'Leary and his friends saw Francisco Solano Lopez as the ultimate Paraguayan, a figure of bravery, honor, determination, and loyalty. He was the Heroe Maximo, and the Paraguayan War was La Gran Epopea, the great epic, the great saga, the story who told Paraguayans who they were. Yes, we were defeated. Let us embrace it. Our defeat was beautiful. It was noble. It was glorious. It was edifying. It's what makes us Paraguayan. This spirit really caught fire from 1932 to 1935, when Paraguay fought the Chaco War with Bolivia. Paraguay won the Chaco War, by the by, putting Bolivia at the bottom rank of South American countries in terms of victories in war. Bolivia has zero, Paraguay at least has one. Sorry, Bolivia. But Paraguayan soldiers came home from the Chaco War, singing Guarani marching songs and cheering the name of Lopez, hearkening back to a time when nationalism and militarism had been something that sustained them in the past, and it was sustaining them now. Soon Lopez and his sons were exhumed from Cerdo Corá and placed in a massive shrine, the Pantheon of the Heroes, in Asuncion. A string of conservative military dictators ruled Paraguay from the 1930s to the 1980s, most notably Alfredo Stroessner from 1954 to 1989 during the Cold War. And these guys were the political legacy of Lopez. They modeled on themselves on Lopez. They drew on nationalist writers like O'Leary to justify their regimes. They drew on Lopez's martyrdom to present their own authoritarianism as legitimate, and lots of Paraguayans agreed with them. They hearkened back to a time when, yes, we might be a small country, we might be insignificant on the global stage, but there was a time when we stood off half of South America for five years, and we deserve to be proud of that. It was Strassner who brought Eliza Lynch's remains home in 1961, and he arranged for O'Leary to read a eulogy at the, at the procession to the First Lady of Paraguay. La Senora Lynch is the greatest heroine of America, surpassed by none in her courage, her selflessness, and her loyalty, through pain and through sacrifice, sublime mother of children forged in the flames of her pain. She resisted five years through the war as an extension of the hero. She never forgot. She lived, died, and her dark Parisian grave awaited her return to the country in which justice would greet her. Hear that, though? Extension of the hero. Even in death, Eliza could not be her own woman. She was only another jewel in Lopez's crown. That was how Paraguay coped with their defeat, by turning its story into a heroic, tragic epic, the great saga that defined their nation. Lots of Paraguayans do not agree with this version of the story. They're, they're not a hive mind. Especially after Strassner's downfall in 1989, there's lots of revisionist historians who are writing and trying to 
correct this record. But Paraguayan politics are still dominated by charismatic strongmen, modeling themselves on Lopez, stunting the country's growth as a modern democracy, and the nationalist narrative of the war remains dominant. The glorious past that overshadows everything in Paraguay, darkening the present and the future. And guys, I guess the question you're probably asking is, why? Why do these people honor Lopez, a man who clearly does not deserve their respect, after all his tyranny and cruelty and cowardice and his delusions that destroyed them? And this is the question that strikes me whenever I researched this. It struck me when I first started reading about this war. The question lots of people have about this war is how it is remembered in Paraguay. How is this seen as something positive? How is this guy seen as a hero? Where's cancel culture when you need it? What I think? If the cause couldn't justify the sacrifice, the sacrifice could justify the cause. Nations cope with their trauma, their grief, their loss, their pain. The same way people cope with trauma, grief, loss, and pain. Nations are just collections of people. They look for meaning in the suffering. Paraguay had suffered so terribly that they had to rationalize it, to justify it, to make it make sense. It had to have been worth something. It had to have meant something. But none of the actual causes of the war, border disputes, free passage on the rivers, the ego of a dictator, the South American balance of power, none of those causes could justify this sacrifice. To justify the death of their nation, Paraguayans had to work backwards. It had to have meant something, so we'll find something for it to mean. We'll find a cause worthy of the sacrifice. Courage, honor, glory, pride, patriotism, nation. Is this logical? Hell no, but human beings aren't logical. When faced with all this death, all this destruction, all this misery and sorrow and sacrifice, when it defies explanation, you find an explanation. To say that they died for nothing, a stupid cause, or one man's ego and ambition, just a couple borders shifting here and there, that's unthinkable. Sorry, your son, your brother, your father, your daughter, you died, they died for nothing? No, people don't accept that. The human mind revolts. They had lost too much for it to mean nothing. And ultimately, this meant justifying Lopez, justifying his cause with their sacrifice. He had to deserve our loyalty. He had to deserve what we gave him. Because if he didn't, then it was all for nothing. And it can't have been. We refuse to believe it. I said that Lopez dying the way he did, as a last-minute martyr after a life of cowardice, was the worst thing he could have done. He hangs like an albatross around the neck of his nation, killing their possible futures by shackling them to the past. The war was the death of a nation. What died was its future, what it could have been, what its proud and courageous and incredible people should have become. And this brings us back to Acosta New. In most countries around the world today, Children's Day is a celebration of youth and innocence, of the promise and hope they represent, of children being children, of the future. But in Paraguay, Children's Day is commemorated on August 16th, the anniversary of Acosta New. It's not a celebration of the future, it's a celebration of the past. It is a martial holiday that celebrates the boy martyrs in their heroic destruction. 
A perfect example of how Paraguay's defeat left scars so deep that they never healed. That even the notion of childhood is sacrificed on the altar of the nation, unable to see the future because of the grief of the past. The boys of Acosta New cannot rest. They were not allowed to be just children in 1869, and they're not allowed to be just children now. They continue to render service and death as martyrs, icons, emblems of a collective human tragedy, the death of a nation. Symbols of a national catastrophe that devoured the Paraguayan people and continues to devour them. They have become a sacrifice that justifies the cause. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Guys, it's been a very long haul, a long story. It took longer than I wanted to get some of these episodes out, and ultimately, in runtime, this is my longest series. I wanted to capture the immensity of this tragedy. It's one of the stories I've always wanted to tell, and I hope I did it right. So here we are at the end of the Paraguayan War. What does it mean? The Paraguayan War never needed to happen. Francisco Solano Lopez made some incredible mistakes to wind up fighting Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay all at the same time. There were real concerns about Brazil and Argentina's new alliance, Uruguay's domination by outside powers, Paraguay's vulnerability to the same domination, etc. But everything Lopez did caused those exact things to happen, so I wouldn't call his strategy successful. But in large part, the climate that caused the Paraguayan War was one of young, recently independent countries trying to find or create national identities. Brazil and Argentina didn't have to commit to the war as hard as they did. Lopez didn't have to attack when he could have backed down. National pride, national honor, the weird personalization of politics in Latin America all contributed to making this war happen. Pedro and Lopez were polar opposites in many ways. But both saw themselves as the personification of their nations. They both felt a sense of duty, and neither felt that they could back down without betraying their people. However admirable or despicable that either of them was in every other way, they both had that going on. So that's why the war happened. But why did it go the way it did? Could Paraguay have won the war? Mmm. Mmm. I think there's like a 3% chance if everything went perfectly. Okay, there's maybe two remote possibilities when that could have happened. Two big turning points. First, if Paraguay had won the Battle of the Riachuelo, if Paraguay's navy knocks out or even captures a big chunk of Brazil's fleet a few months into the war, that could have turned the tide. That's, it was really the only chance Lopez had to achieve an outright military victory. It's why I consider it the decisive battle of the war. Or if Urquiza and the Federalists at any point had joined Lopez against Mitre, if Argentina collapses into civil war again, I, I think Paraguay has a solid shot at winning the war. It, only Argent, I mean, Argentina was clearly the weaker partner with Brazil, but only Argentina's cities and its economy kept the war going. But neither of those happened. The real question isn't why Paraguay lost. 
it's why the Allies took so long to win. I mean, the, the obvious resource, you know, deficiencies of Paraguay, the odds are clearly against Paraguay from the beginning. So why the Allies take so long to win? One reason was Allied ineptitude, the struggles of alliance politics and incompetent military leadership from Mitre, Flores, Tamandare, etc. It took the Allies a long time to get someone competent in charge who could actually pull everyone together and get things moving. Of course, this was Casillas. But also there were the Paraguayans, who were insanely motivated, way more than the Allies. Even though they were fighting way outside of their weight class, even though they were starving, outgunned, outnumbered, outclassed, the Paraguayan soldier displayed such incredible and persistent courage that, again, the closest comparison I have is to the Japanese in World War II. They just didn't give up, even when there was no point in fighting on. And the outcome of the war comes back to resources and will. Resources won. But this was not inevitable. Allied will almost snapped. If Argentina dips out of the war in 1867, if Brazil goes broke in 1868, if Pedro falls off his horse and cracks his head open and someone less more wishy-washy takes charge, well, Lopez probably continues to rule over Paraguay and there's some sort of compromise peace. Paraguay might not have won the war, but they might have avoided the worst possible outcome. But the Allies did maintain their will, and the fall of Humaita was the point of no return. After that, Paraguay had lost. Like, they're not going to win. There's no remote possibility after this point. But Lopez just wouldn't take the L. The Allies were partially responsible for the disaster that happened to Paraguay, but I consider Lopez most responsible. He had started the war against all common sense. He led it badly, and he really should have taken the chance to surrender in 1866 or 1867 or the other 20 times he got a chance to. But his ego, his sense of, you know, oneness with his country and his, you know, identification that his country was an extension of himself, and of course, his sense of duty, however misguided it might have been, None of that would allow him to surrender, and his country paid the price. What are the broader lessons we can learn from the Paraguayan War? First, nationalism is a hell of a drug. Ideology, a belief, these things matter to people, and even when they're not logical or rational, people still function on them. Nations can and will go to war over points of principle, over honor, over pride. And this isn't always just some guy at the top who gets offended by something. It is often grassroots. It's often the people who are driving this, not the leaders. These things can keep a war going long past the point of objective reason. Human emotions get involved. None of us are immune from that. The Paraguayan War became so vicious, so bloody, so destructive. It spiraled into extremes because of those emotions. The worse the war got, the more blood was shed, the harder it was to end. It's sunk cost fallacy. Because the harder the sacrifices became to justify without a cause to match. Second, nations can and will fight long past the point when they should have given up. Countries can and will buckle down and commit far more resources, far more men, far more will than you ever imagine, even when it doesn't make any sense and is actively self-destructive. I'm not just talking about Paraguay. 
Look what happened to Brazil with its military. They made the military powerful, even though they knew that was dangerous because they wanted to win the war. And look what happened. Look what almost happened to Argentina. It, Argentina almost fell apart several times because they continued the war, despite the majority of their people not really being super happy about it. Paraguay waved a total war to save their nation, and they destroyed themselves in the process. It's not hard to see that the way Paraguay waged the war for survival destroyed them. As I said, it wasn't just Lopez that kept them fighting. The Paraguayans really believed in their cause. That kept them going through starvation and disease, through everything, even to the bitter end. Finally, defeat does funny things to a nation. You can look at the United States after Vietnam, or Russia now, for evidence of that. I will go out on a limb and say, the way Paraguay responded to its defeat was probably not healthy, but it may have been the only way they could have responded. In the end, their identity, their abs- after the Paraguayan War, when everything's destroyed, when most of their people are dead, who they were, their identity, their abstract idea of nation, it was all they had left. They had nothing left to build on but the memory and the fallen and the sacrifice. We don't have to approve. It's not for us to approve. We just need to understand. Let them grieve the children of Acosta New and all the others, however they need to grieve them. And maybe someday, Paraguay can finally walk into the light and begin to heal. I think that this proud, brave little nation at the heart of the continent, an incredible nation, deserves to move on from their defeat. I pray that they find it in them someday to look to the future, not the past, and finally let the boy martyrs of Acosta New rest. Until then, they live amongst their tombs and graveyards, from Tuyuti to Acosta New, from Cerro Cora to Humaita, from the Mato Grosso to the Riachuelo, where thousands of soldiers and sailors and civilians, men and women and black and brown and white and in between, Brazilian, Argentine, Uruguayan and Paraguayan, fought and died for things they believed in. To their nations, living and dead, they are legendary. To the rest of the world, they are unknown soldiers. Thanks for listening today, and thanks for hanging out with me in South America for so freaking long. Okay, what's coming up next? First, I'm probably going to do something new. I plan to do a Paraguayan War footnotes episode sometime in the next couple weeks. This will be where I discuss the themes a bit more. Some things I cut from the main series for lack of time or they couldn't fit, my bibliography, etc. Basically, this is the stuff I've been usually putting in the introductions, but it makes more sense to discuss the historiography after the series, not before. So look out for a Paraguayan War footnote sometime next couple weeks. Got it? Moving on. Second, there will be a Dom Pedro short round coming out sometime after that. But then I will be taking a bit of a break until February. I've run myself a bit ragged with work and drills and holidays and stuff, and this series, and especially this last episode, was extremely, um, was emotionally difficult to research sometimes, which is why I'm typing this at 1.46 a.m. So I'm going to take a knee for a bit before coming back with the next full-length episode in February. I expect February 12th or thereabouts, but stay tuned. We're going back to Africa for that one, in particular, Ethiopia. So get excited. 
Finally, I will be ending season two of the podcast sometime in May or June next year. I'm going to have a National Guard training in the summer. It's going to have reunions. I'm going to have vacations and stuff. This this schedule is just going to be haphazard. So I'm taking a hard knee for like three to four months. After So I'll be taking a several month long break to prepare for season three, kicking off with the next series, which will be the Soviet-Afghan War. Because I got to kick off every season I do with Afghanistan. Okay, I think those are all my updates. So on that note, don't forget to check the website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. And if you want to talk to me about this episode or this series, or you want to suggest to me what I should do next, feel free to send me an email at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Want to do me a big favor? Review me on Spotify or Apple or any streaming service you use so other people know how awesome this podcast is. All right, I think that's it. I think I'm really, really done this time. Woo! Longest one yet? Yeah, yeah, it's the longest one so far. Anyway, keep an eye out for Paraguayan War Footnotes and Dom Pedro, and see you in February for our next full-length episode, right here on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 